As you're taking the Bible that you have before you, I'd encourage you to take it and open it to the book of Jonah. This is the book that we've been working through for the last couple of weeks. And I would um, announce to our family, if you haven't heard, maybe you're not on the prayer chain, uh, that our own Al Hicks, his his wife Sally and the Hicks family that attend so faithfully at our church, Al's mother passed away this week. And I believe the funeral is on Tuesday in Oklahoma. So I wanted you to be aware of that, to give you an opportunity to be praying for him, his family. Um, as they are away, Lord willing, they'll be with us next week. Why don't we just take some time and we'll pray together right now. Father, we do appreciate this time that we have together. And as we have looked at the pages here of Jonah, we have seen that you are a merciful God. You pour out forgiveness and love to people that don't deserve it. Many here in this room can testify to that with a a first-hand account. And we would pray that as the Word again is taught today, that it it would have that same effect of, of transforming lives as it did in the city of Nineveh. Around us today are people that are hurting, and we think of Al Hicks, Sally, his wife, and we want to pray your blessing over them as you uh, uphold them and and keep them strong during this time. We pray that you would bless the grandchildren as well as um, Al's siblings, and and may your word be faithfully proclaimed at the funeral, and there would be people that would come to faith in Christ as a result of this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to resume looking at Jonah chapter 3. This is where we left off last week. The year that followed my high school graduation, I was living at home, working, and then also commuting to an area community college. And on one winter evening, I decided to load up and, and drive into the local high school and take in a basketball game. Now, it was a cold, snowy night. The snow was coming down much like it was this past Thursday. And as I came into the parking lot behind the school, I had a flash of recklessness where I accelerated fast and I turned my front wheels and I lifted up the emergency brake and I swung the back end of my car into a parking spot. I was quite proud of my maneuvering right there, and wanting to impress my friends, I decided to leave my car just the way it was. Took the keys out, went into the basketball game, and kind of forgot about the car. And around halftime, I noticed the the village policeman uh, was was there positioned at the main entrance of the the gym, and and it wasn't unusual to see him at basketball games because he was kind of a fixture there. But what was unusual was a school teacher that was talking to him, coming to me around the third quarter of that basketball game, says, Hez, there's a, there's a policeman over there. He, he's wanting to know who is driving that vehicle. And his plan is, after this game, to, to give you a citation for reckless driving. Needless to say, that cast a gloomy cloud on the rest of that basketball game for me. And at the close of that game, I, I walked out to the parking lot, anticipating that he'd be waiting for me right beside my car, and he wasn't there. And I thought, hey, 
Maybe he got called away to something more serious and I'm going to escape here. So I got in my car and I started it and, and began to make my way out of the parking lot onto the main road. There was approximately three cars in front of me and maybe 10, 15 cars behind me and we were slowly inching out to the main road. And then I looked off to my left and who was it? It was that policeman and he was waiting for me to get out on the main road to pull me over. So I did what any 18-year-old boy and the vast majority of our deacons would do. When I got out on that main road, I punched it. And I tried to flee that situation as quickly as I could. Unfortunately, there was about three or four inches of fresh snow, and all I did was spin. And I'd only made it a few blocks before I saw the red lights in my, my rear rear window, and I pulled over. And there, sure enough, I was issued a citation for, I'll never forget this, $123, which was crippling at that point in my life. Shortly after that, a, a dear friend of mine, her dad called and says, Chad, I would not pay that. He didn't see you do it, that policeman. He has no right to issue such a citation. In fact, this was the only time I can recall one of my school teachers actually calling my home. My civics teacher, who I had just the year before, my senior year, who taught us government, he called me too and says, Chad, don't pay that. He never saw you do that. Fight that in court. And I think what he meant was go in court and lie under oath and tell the judge that I didn't do it. I'm sure I could have got off there. And even though I wasn't a Christian at that time, I knew that even though that, that, that policeman didn't know, nor would the Russ County judge know, I knew and God knew what I had done. And so with a humble heart, I paid that $123. And as I look back at my life, it was one of those events that God used to humble me to reveal some, some rebellion within me. And it was a lesson that I've learned and am continuing to learn. In our passage in the book of Jonah, we have been reading about a preacher, a prophet with this name Jonah, who at one time was just issued the real simple instructions. I want you to go to Nineveh to preach the word there. And he bristled at that. This prodigal prophet said, I will not go. And he went in the opposite direction. And God brought humility into his life in the form of a, a wonderful a storm that swept across the sea, rocking his boat, forcing him eventually to be thrown out of that boat into the sea. And then God brought another wave of discipline, of humility in his life by allowing him to be swallowed by a wave. And that's not the only dose of humility that we see throughout this book, because in the third chapter that we covered last week, we see this word of the Lord actually being now proclaimed at the city of Nineveh, and these people are actually receiving it. These wicked citizens, these Assyrians, are humbling themselves and saying, God, you are right. We have done what is wrong. And there is this citywide repentance that is taking place. Well, this morning we're going to cover the last half of chapter 3 of Jonah. 
But because it's only 10 chapters in full, what I'd like to do is read the whole chapter together, and we'll only cover the second half of it. But the first five verses will give you a little bit more context. So beginning again in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and forty nights shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now our passage for this morning. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish." When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of their disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Well, as we review this passage, some of it we read last week, let's just cover a few things as we work through this passage together. Number one, we've seen this theme throughout the book of Jonah, and that is Nineveh was a city of sinners. This was a large city. In fact, if we look at chapter 4, verse 11, we'll cover this, Lord willing, next week, we see that there were 120,000 people in this city. That is a massive city for this era. And in the city of Nineveh were a certain group of people. What were their names? Do you remember church family? Starts with an A. The Assyrians, that's right. These were a wicked group of people. Now, there have been empires that have come and gone throughout world history. And many of these empires would like to seek to conquer a city or a village and have them assimilate into their own culture. Think of the Babylonians. When they overtook God's people, they sought to take Daniel, one of the best and brightest of Israel, and make them a part of their own government. This was not the strategy of the Assyrians. They didn't want to assimilate. They wanted to annihilate. And so when they would come into a city, they would seek to destroy the men, the women, and the children. In fact, they would go sometimes and even take out the trees because they never wanted that city or village to be built back again. And just like the Egyptians were famous for their own pyramids. The Assyrians made their pyramids themselves. And you know what they were made of? Human heads. They were grotesque. They would take one that they had captured and literally pull the tongue out of them alive. 
And they had this strategy in which they would pull the legs and the arms of one that they had captured and literally fillet their skin off them and then hang it on the city walls as if to say, don't mess with us. And God says to Jonah, arise and go and preach to them. No wonder Jonah was skeptical about going because he thought potentially God would bestow forgiveness and mercy to these people. And if ever there were a people that did not deserve it, it was the Assyrians. Yet he after a second time, we saw that in chapter 3 verse 1, and he offers this simple message in the second half of verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In these simple words that God had given him to share had a profound effect. You see it there in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. God's word in the book of Jeremiah is called a hammer. It says there in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? And this simple sentence that Jonah had offered to these wicked people was like a hammer to their hearts, breaking away their pride, breaking away their self-will, exposing their wickedness before a holy God. This was a wake-up call to the people of Nineveh. Their bill of sin was coming due, and they would pay up with their own lives and souls. And yet God did this work of grace in their life, revealing to them their sin, giving them this gift of repentance. And it not only stayed on the local streets, but according to verses 6 through 10 that we cover this morning, it actually hit the White House. It actually hit the palace where the king was. And so we see here in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. What word was that? It was this simple message that Jonah was proclaiming. And it was striving like a jackhammer all around the city of Nineveh, even to the heart of the king. And it had gone to him. And it says here in verse 6, He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Think with me what that might have looked like. President Biden, coming out of the Oval Office, in this, in this wonderful tailor-made suit, taking that off with a tie in a starched white shirt and replacing it with some very uncomfortable sackcloth that represented sorrow, uncomfort. And it was not just the uncomfort of the exterior, but it was uncomfort of knowing that you had offended a holy God. So exchanging garments, coming out of the palace coming out of this throne coming out of the oval office to sit in a heap of ashes that when put on one's face or over one's body would make them look miserable make them look foolish and that was the attendant effect 
to show that before God, I am miserable, I am foolish, because I have broken God's law. And this is what it says here. And you can imagine some advisors, some assistants coming to this king and saying, Your Highness, you ought not to look like this. You are our image. People look up to you and to represent our city. And look what you are looking like. Don't you realize that the other people will think our, we are weak and, and our dynasty could fall? Of which the king might have just replied, What dynasty? What palace? What, what king will we have if we don't repent as we stand before this holy God? Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And once again, we have kind of an embarrassing portrait, don't we? In the book of Jonah, you have in the opening verses, God's word coming to a prophet. This supposedly man of God, and he he buckles at this word. But when this word is now presented to these wicked people of Nineveh, they receive it instantly and turn from their sins. Not only does he have this reaction of covering himself in sackcloth and sitting in ashes, he uses his influence, he uses his power to offer his own executive order. Look with me at verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, and this is what it says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone who turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. There are four items within this executive order. The first is do not eat or drink. You will notice that this fast that is proclaimed is not only for men and women, but it's also for animals. This is extended to the mules and to the horses and to the camels. And one might think, uh, King, don't you know what this will do to our economy? Many of us rely on these animals for our businesses. And if they're worn out and thirsty and hungry, we won't have a business. To which the king may have replied, Who cares about an economy? Haven't you heard that God's going to bring His judgment upon us? We need to seek the mercy of God. I have found it interesting. You don't see this other places where a fast is called even for animals. As I was thinking about this throughout the week, I can't help but go through this morning routine where I get up in the morning and the, the, the family cat awaits me and wants me to feed him and meows until I do so. And our cat has put on a couple of winter layers. I don't know if you have a, a pet like that. But uh, I thought to myself, you know, it wouldn't be all that bad for this cat to have a, a fast proclaimed over it for an extended period of time. And, and maybe your pets are like that too. But that was the first thing. Do not eat or drink. Here's the second thing in this executive order, and that is you are to wear sackcloth. One of the most uncomfortable materials one could wear. It was as if to say, 
I am uncomfortable with what I have done to offend the holy God of Israel. This would have been something that was worn at a funeral. The third part of this executive order was call out to God and plead for forgiveness. You'll see it there in verse 8. And let them call out mightily to God. It wasn't just call out to God, but people of Nineveh, you with great passion, with, with great intensity, have offended God by your violent acts, by your evil thoughts, by the evil intentions of your heart. You have been selfish. And in the same intensity that you have had to break the law of God, bring that same intensity back and call out mightily to God. And then you also see the last part of that executive order was to turn from evil and violence. It says there in verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So it wasn't so much just, hey, feel sorry for what you have done. Stop sinning. Don't keep doing what you are doing is what he is saying here. And then in verse 9, this king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and, and turn from his fierce anger so that we not perish. And if you're following along in the book of Jonah, this is the second time that a pagan leader has offered that thought. Chapter 1, verse 6, while Jonah was on the ship, the captain said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So there is no presumption here that these people of Nineveh deserve forgiveness. They realize what they deserve is God's judgment. That this warning is real, that they very well could be overthrown. But the king's like, we don't know what's going to happen. Let us devote all of our energy, all of our passion to confessing our sins and doing our best to humble ourselves. Now, it would not be unusual during this era for ones to feel like they have offended a deity, a false god. And if you're familiar with some of this era, what that would have triggered for them is an abundance of sacrifices. Oh, the gods are mad with us, so we must kill a bunch of bulls and a bunch of sheep. So we, get, we need to try to satisfy their anger. So let's, let's have all these sacrifices. Well, there would be a sacrifice made on their behalf. But it would be hundreds of years later. At this point, what they are asked to do is just to repent. And that is what they are doing. Now, when some read the book of Jonah, and they, they look at history they would say that the people of Nineveh here were not authentic in their repentance. They were just trying to escape God's wrath, but they had no intentions of actually following him. Well, let's see what Jesus had to say about that. In Matthew 12, verse 41, allow me to read what he said. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I think this is what Jesus was saying. As he was standing before the people, proclaiming the word of God to them, authenticating it with miracles, 
he was saying to them, several hundreds of years ago, there was Jonah that proclaimed the message to the Ninevites. And many of those people of Nineveh repented of their sins and became followers of my father. Now today, you are able to hear my voice, the Son of God, God himself's words proclaimed to you, and you are seeing them accompanied by miracles. And if you reject this message of me, there will come a day when the citizens of Nineveh will look down upon you and say, you guys had a lot better chance to believe than we did. All we had was a prodigal prophet proclaimed to us. You had Jesus himself proclaimed to you. We see here in this passage, as it concludes, God is the God of mercy. Look at the verse 10 then. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here are these wicked people. If ever there were a group of people, if ever there were a city that warned God's judgment, it was this city. But they humbled themselves. God looked upon them. And maybe your translation even says he repented or he changed his mind. And some have said, wait a minute. Didn't God say in chapter 3, verse 4, that he was going to overthrow that city? And now he is not doing that. Did God change? Did God change his mind? I thought the Bible tells us that God does not change his mind. I would refer you to Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10, where he says this. This is God speaking. He says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. It may seem like he changed his mind, but God knew all along that these people would repent And he would lift up his judgment and not pour it out on these people. God granted the people of this wicked city something they didn't deserve. Mercy and forgiveness. Often, mercy surfaces in the most unusual places, doesn't it? When you think of the Old Testament, much of these Old Testament prophets would proclaim a message to God's own people, the people who had the law, the Word of God. And it was these people, these were the people that rejected the mercy of God if it was extended to them. And this we also see in the New Testament as well, as Jesus proclaimed the message to the Pharisees and the scribes, even people of the Sanhedrin, they would hear this message. But they were so full of knowledge up here that they could not see the truth of Jesus with their own heart. And Jesus would then turn to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the sinners, and these would be the recipients of his mercy could be here this morning that you're looking around and saying, you know, there's no mercy for me. 
If the people within this room knew some of the things that I've done with my life, there's no way I would be a recipient of God's mercy. And the truth is, you are whom God sent Jesus for. For you to have an awareness of the filthiness of your sins. Often, mercy shows up in some surprising places. You would think a nation like America, that in many ways was founded on Christian truth, and that has all but abandoned that in in recent decades. You would think that America, with all the Bible-preaching churches, this would be the place where the work of God is most evident and seen. But often, we're seeing God work in other areas of the country or world rather than here in America. You might remember that it was almost a year ago, uh, Jim Van Geem and I went off to Senegal, West Africa, and while we were there, we had a chance to fly into the capital city of Dakar, and from there we got another uh, flight to another town called Zigashore, and there we stayed for a few days, and we met our missionary whose name was Moses, and then we got into a vehicle and we drove to a coastal town on this tributary mouth of the Atlantic Ocean. And there we got on a boat. And we took about a 45-minute boat ride out to an island called Neamun. And while there, we learned that the people were fishermen by trade, and they were farmers that, that farmed rice for their own sustenance. And while we walked into the village, we met a, the, the chief of the village, a man by the name of Boniface, who was in his late 30s, who Moses had led to the Lord just a trip or two before that. They welcomed us because they saw us as Christians. And right there in Boniface, the chief's hut, our home, uh, Jim Van Geem and I sat down and we had a chance to share the gospel. And as Boniface would have people passing by his house, he'd say, get in here, get in here, listen to what these people have to say. And while we were done, there were a handful of young teenagers that says, I will become a follower of Jesus. Then from there, we walked another mile or so deeper, further into this island, and we saw another, what looked like another collection of homes. And as we rounded the corner and entered into this little marketplace area, we could hear from our translator that the people were saying, hey, they're back. And they were saying to them, hey, you told us you were going to come back and tell us more about Jesus. Where have you been? You told us that you were going to come and show us the Jesus film. Where have you been? We have wanted to see this. And so with around 30 different people seated around, Jim Van Geem began to share the gospel with them with an interpreter. And of those 30, maybe 18 to 20 of them says, we will become followers of Jesus. And it was among the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. It wasn't long after that that we, we had to board a plane and come back here to a different world with COVID now beginning to make its way into our country. And missionary Moses in Senegal wasn't much further behind us. It wasn't long before he came back to America for furlough. But about a month ago, a little over a month ago, he returned to Senegal. And he was eager to go back out to that island. And so he loaded it with a a translator as well as a a church planter and an evangelist local and they got on that boat and they went back out to Neamun Island, this time with the video camera, poised to show the Jesus film. And he had estimated around 200 people were there to watch the Jesus film. 
And of those 200, around 100 of them put their faith in Christ right there on that island. And there was a great excitement to see the mercy of God being received there in a very unusual place. Now, as, as Jim Van Geem and I were there, we were thinking, well, it seems like there's some, a local church here in Ziggashaw where they have a mission mind, and they can send people out to that island to disciple and, and plant a church. They just need some resources, and perhaps Highland Crest could be a part of that. So just this past week, I was speaking to Moses, the missionary there, and saying, what can we do to help? And in God's providence, the New Testament on this island has been translated, but now they are working on the Old Testament. And so Wycliffe, Bible translators are in in the path there, attempting to help. They have hired 10 locals to help translate. They're thinking it'll take five years to translate the Old Testament into the native language there. And I told Moses, I said, anything you need to do, anything that we can do to help, if there's any sort of things that we can help uh, in this process, we want to be a part of that. And he, he mentioned, well, our translators need a scooter to go from here and there. And I said, well, let me check on that. I think we could help you with that. So don't be surprised if I come to you asking for money for a scooter in the coming, in coming days. But he also said to me, Chad, as wonderful as it is for you to help subsidize some of this stuff, what we really need is we need, we need you to come. And we need people from your church to come. Because when you arrive on that island, it creates a buzz. People are like, hey, there are Americans here. And people come and they want to hear what you have to say. So when you just arrive, that gives us a better platform to share the gospel. So don't forget, we want you to come. You saw in your bulletin today that there are some pictures there of what's taking place in Senegal. And I think you can anticipate some more information of a return trip maybe in April, maybe in May, and, and maybe another one that will follow, that we can be a part of seeing a church established there on Neamun Island, partnering with another local church there. I can't think of anything that would be more exciting than to see a new church start that we get to be a part of. So be in prayer for this effort. Be in prayer for what God is doing there on this Neamun Island. Yes, often mercy surfaces in the most unusual places. And let me conclude with this. Mercy is still available today. The same mercy that was made available to the people there of Nineveh, these Assyrians, these wicked people, this same mercy is attainable for you today. Humble yourself. A sacrifice has been made on your behalf by God sending Jesus to the cross that you deserve. He is taking your death upon him. That if you would humble yourself and say, I need forgiveness of my sins. I want to walk from my wicked ways. I want to follow this God all the days of my life. That mercy is available to you today as well. History tells us that this revival that took place in Nineveh was short-lived. In fact, it lasted one generation. And it won't be long, and we're going to be reading some other minor prophets that are hammering away at the citizens of Nineveh for hardening their heart towards the things of God. 
those of us, maybe you have received God's mercy at one point in your life, and you have walked with the Lord, but today you find yourself with a cold heart. You have not sensed God's presence and His blessing for a long time. The mercy is still available to you to receive. I came across this week a wonderful little story from Robert Robinson. I don't know if you know that name, but during George Whitfield's time, he was converted. And as a 23-year-old young man, he was soundly saved. He was born again. And he was a songwriter, so he penned some words. Come thou fount of every blessing, streams of mercy never ceasing. Sadly, Robinson wandered far from those streams and, like the prodigal son, journeyed into a life of carnality. Several years had passed and he was away from God. And one day he was on a stagecoach with a young woman who was engrossed in her book. And as she was reading through the book, she came across the verse that she thought was beautiful. And she asked him what he thought. This is what that said. Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Bursting into tears, Robinson said, Madam, I am that poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I could just enjoy the feelings I had then. Although greatly surprised, she reassured him that the streams of mercy mentioned in this song still flowed. Mr. Robinson was deeply touched and turned his wandering heart to the Lord and was restored in a full fellowship. The streams of mercy flow today. They find their source in the cross at Calvary. Receive the mercy of God. Humble yourselves. Ask for forgiveness of your sins. Ask Jesus to be Lord of your life. And by his grace, follow him all your days. Let's stand. Lord, I pray that your word has gone out like a hammer again today. Breaking through our pride. Maybe breaking through our resistance to say, God could never love me. I've wasted my days. I've wasted my life. I dare say that there isn't anyone here guilty of skinning someone alive, guilty of taking someone's head off and making a pyramid out of it. And if that mercy could reach down and save such wicked people, certainly that grace of God and that mercy could be extended down to our vileness as well. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would grant us the faith to reach out and say, be merciful to me, God. Save me from my sins. You've sent a sacrifice on my behalf that I would not have to offer it in Jesus Christ. And by faith, I trust that this has saved me. He is my substitute. Jesus took the wrath that I deserve, that I might have a fellowship, a quality of relationship with you. This is what I desire. And for those whom have experienced that at one time in their life, but have wandered from the faith, may they return and receive that streams of mercy that we sing about in that classic old song. 
and have the, the assurance that there is forgiveness and there's a wholeness to their relationship with you again. In Jesus' name, amen.